listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hi, Canada. Happy Wednesday. How's it going? How's everyone doing today? If you're listening to us across the country, I feel for you folks in Manitoba. We're going to try to get out to Manitoba today. Because here we are on April 13th, and there is a monster, monster storm hitting southern Manitoba. The peg is getting pounded, three-day storm, sideways snow, apparently. Like nasty, 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 nasty snow. Uh, my producer on Power Play, Rachel Swatek, uh, is a Winnipegger. She grew up there. Her parents are there. Her family's there. She said she never in her life had a snow day. Never in her life. There's a snow day in Winnipeg. Like when the peg has a snow day, it's real. I'm telling you, I'm so done with winter, aren't you? Imagine now facing 70 kilometer an hour winds like... I don't know how much snow there's supposed to be. Someone can uh, text me at 7, 10, 10, but I'm hearing like 80 centimeters. Am I wrong here? Uh, they say total snowfall, 30 to 40 centimeters around the peg, 40 to 60 centimeters in Red Valley. So, so I, maybe I'm exaggerating there, but up to 50 centimeters of snow. Like this is crazy. Oh no. This is why I got this. I'm reading an article now from CBC. The weather agencies previously said those higher elevations could push closer to 80 centimeters. So so I'd I'd heard about this 80 centimeters. So think about that. We'll try to check in with those folks. Like, it is brutal out there. Anyway, I feel for you. I know it's Canada. But Canada in April does not deserve, you know, 50 to 60 centimeters of snow. So the peg is getting pounded and, and, and the rest of southern Manitoba. Here's what's on the show today. Um, this is some great. There's a guy that has been a friend of the show for a long time, and I've known him for a long time. His name is Bill Browder. He's just written a new book called Freezing Order, the true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. He wrote a best-selling book called Red Notice. If you've ever read it, read it. This is his new book. I've read it. Uh, it's just coming out. Bill, um, his part, his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, was murdered by Vladimir Putin. And that's why today you always hear when we have sanctions against Russia, the Magnitsky sanctions. They're named after Sergei Magnitsky, Bill's part, his lawyer and a good friend. And this book outlines how Putin essentially has tried to murder people. And if you think there's another reality under a a totalitarian like Putin, just wait till you read this book, what Bill's been through. Bill's life has been threatened. His friend's life, his his good friends like Navalny, the opposition leader, who's a very close friend, who I've interviewed, was murdered, as we know, by Putin. I mean, this is a harrowing, like, you just imagine going to bed, and I'm just going to, you know, and Bill's going to join us today with his new book. Imagine you get a note, hey, Bill. It's me. I'm a former Russian spy. Uh, I can tell you we've got information that there's a hit squad coming after you and your four kids and your wife. Good night. Good night. That's Bill's life for years. For years. Imagine Putin meeting with Donald Trump and you're being discussed when the United States is looking to extradite 
12 Soviet or Soviet Russian spies and then return. Putin says, yeah, I'll cooperate with that as long as you turn over Bill Browder. He says his name. Uh, Putin says to Trump, as long as you turn over Bill Browder. Imagine that's how high up on the hit list you are. So you're going to meet Bill. He's been on before, but his new book is, it's unbelievable. The War Room's here. Uh, We'll talk about that. And and the conservative race, which is like hot fire. Uh, You know I'm on a bit of a a tear about Juneau Beach. And, And we've covered this story a lot. That there's a French condo developer that wants to build a condominium on Juneau Beach. They've got the permits right near the museum that memorializes the great Canadian moment when Canadians stormed the Normandy Beach at Juneau Beach and took took thousands of casualties and, and close to 400 deaths that day. And it's a sacred spot and not a spot for a condominium. You don't forget about the Allies sending their sons and daughters over to be slaughtered by the Nazis to free your country, France, and then say, you know what, thanks, but we're going to build a condo on this historic place where there's a museum. So, so there's a, a, a conservative MP, Frank Caputo, who is over in Juneau, and, and we're going we're gonna to reach out to Frank. I told you I'd follow this story. There's one thing that kind of drives me crazy about the media, and here I am, you know, in a self-loathing moment, is you know how you, you hear a story on the radio or on television or in the newspaper, and, and it really catches your heart, and then it just, you don't hear about it again. There's no follow-up. There's no narrative. There's no sense of completion. There's no sense of what, I think one of the reasons people don't, you know, trust the media in some ways, and I'm going to go to breaking news in a minute because I think we've got, um, I don't know if we've got the search for the gunman. No, we don't. Um, but there, if there's a press conference on the, on the manhunt in New York for the shooter on that, that Brooklyn-bound train, we'll go there. But one thing that I think people distrust a bit about the media is the media just drops things. Like, whatever happened to? You know, it kind of goes in like a tourist, snaps a picture, grabs a souvenir, and leaves. And one of the kind of philosophies or tenets of our show, if you will, is is when we latch onto something, we, we try to follow it. Because we like it. We believe in it. There's something there that we care about. Uh, Juno Beach is something we care about. People who had their houses flooded in BC, we, we were in touch with. We care about it. And, and if we drop something and you say, hey, whatever happened to, we'll, we'll follow it. And I think we got to, and I think we've got to be responsive to that. Uh, in the meantime, today, the big news for you, the big news for me, the big news for every single Canadian is inflation and interest rates. And, and this is not a topic that you, you want to discuss. You want to discuss um, watching a great movie. You want to discuss, you know, people you love. Like this morning, I, I went to see my son in his last, you know, he's playing badminton and rugby this year at his school, and he's in his last badminton tournament, so I, I decided to pop over to the school early in the morning to watch him. 
I always say I, I could watch my kids play sports forever. One of the most joyous things. And, and you never tell them, do this or do that, be better, if, unless they ask. The first thing you were supposed to say, and this is good coaching that I learned, is I, and I'll probably credit my wife for this, I love watching you play. Just tell your kids, I love watching you play. Gosh, I, God, I love watching you do that. And and it has the benefit of truth, because boy, do you. So I'd love to tell you about that. Or I'd love to tell you about a movie. Or I'd love to tell you about something I did. Or that you did. Or, you know. But the truth is, you got to know about inflation. And the Bank of Canada hiked its benchmark half a percentage point to 1%. Because the inflation rate is at a 30-year high. And... This is really interesting. And you probably have questions. How high will inf- will the interest rate go? Because when the key interest rate goes up, your mortgage rate goes up. The banks adjust. Now, even at 1%, even though it's gone up 50 basis points, it's still at an historic low. And it goes to show you how used to it we uh, low rates are. But how high could it go? Big mystery. Well, the governor of the bank, Tiff Macklin, said it could go to what he calls a neutral rate of 2 to 3%. Now, what would 2 to 3% mean? How fast could that happen? What will it mean for inflation? What's causing inflation? I'm going to take a break because I, and, and, and I want to bring in a, a special guest that's going to help us understand that. Because I do think whatever else is going on in your life, you got to do, you got to crunch the numbers, right? This is about your pocketbook. The invisible thief of inflation is stealing your money and we've got to know how to control it so we're going to dig into that next stay with us helping you through these unique times this is the evan solomon show Coming up on the show, Bill Browder, the man Vladimir Putin has targeted and would has tried to kill, arrest, murdered many of his friends. Bill Browder on Vladimir Putin. You don't want to miss him. He, he's He's been the top of Putin's target list for years. Got an, like a hair-raising new book out called Freezing Order. You don't want to miss that. Uh, we've got lots in the show, the war room standing by, but of course, interest rates are the story today, and it affects us all. And it is the downer subject as interest rates go up by half a percentage point, they go to 1%, still historic lows, but why? Well, interest rates got to go up to fight 30-year high inflation. The Bank of Canada governor, Tiff Macklin, who has joined us on this show, said the um, reason why inflation is so bad um and that we've actually, even though we had a shock, we've rebounded, is, and that's driving inflation, the rebound from the shock. Listen. With that, uh, global supply chains have not been able to keep, keep up. They're, they're clogged. Uh, they're impaired. And with the surge, particularly in demand for goods, you're seeing uh, sharply higher goods prices. Uh, the war in Ukraine has further uh, increased inflation in Canada and around the world. So he's saying external factors... And we'll get to the politics here domestically. People, some politicians are blaming the bank for inflation. He said, look, it's international factors like the war. And he said, look, here's why I'm raising interest rates. With an economy with considerable momentum, an economy that's moving into excess demand, 
uh, our domestic inflationary pressures are also uh, increasing. Uh, and uh, you know, the other key reason to raise rates today and to signal the need for further increases is that we we need to bring demand and supply uh, back into balance and bring inflation back to target. Okay, so so back to target is 2%. The bank has a 2% target of inflation rate. And he said, well, how high can it go? He goes, look, we don't have a target interest rate. We have a target inflation rate, which is 2%. To get there, he believes the interest rate could go up to between 2 and 3%. He calls that a neutral rate, and he thinks that that will control inflation. Now, is that right? And how does that affect you? Let's bring in Ian Lee, associate professor at Carleton University Sprott School of Business, our old pal. How you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks very much, Evan, and I'm glad you're uh, bringing this subject, this topic, to uh, to the public. It is a big one. All right. Let he. Well, I want to start on what I thought was significant. He said, look, the neutral rate, could be 2 to 3%. So that would be the key interest rate. What would that do to banks if it goes to 2 or 3%? And for everyone listening, what would that do for mortgages? Um, let me deal with the bank side first. And I did work in banking in the 70s, early 80s. I was a mortgage manager at BMO Main Office on Spark Street Mall. It's now the Sir Johnny McDonald Reception Center for House of Commons. And um, uh, the banks, remember, are, and it's really important for everyone to understand this, banks are intermediaries. And I mean by that, they take money in, called my paycheck, your paycheck, everybody else's paycheck. The, re- the receipts and the revenues from businesses get deposited in the bank. Nobody buries their money in a sock in the backyard anymore. And then they lend that money back out. A bank is all borrowed money. That's the nature of banking. So when the cost of borrowing goes up because the central bank signals through the bank rate increase, rates must go up, the banks put up their rates on the deposit side. That's the, in other words, they're attracting deposits called GICs. So the rates will go up on the savings side, and then the rates will be passed on as well on the borrowing side. So the banks are not perfectly protected. I'm not trying to say it's literally one penny for one penny, but generally rates will go up on both sides. They will go up on the borrowing side that they will pass on to customers, but the rates will also go up on the rates that banks pay you if you are a net saver. So the, the key takeaway is in the, with whenever there are rate increases, there's winners and losers. The losers are people who owe money. The winners are those people who save money who are not indebted, typically older people who've paid off their mortgages and have GICs and TDRs and so on. But most people are losers right now because most people have something like a mortgage. How does this affect the mortgage rate? And the hot housing market, which the prime minister speaks right. about today, he spoke about it again. Pierre Polyever is basically running a front-running campaign based on this. How does this impact that? Um, it'll impact it in a differential manner. And I say that because uh, those people who owe money on their mortgages, and it's nowhere near as large as people may think. This is StatsCan data. 43% of Canadian homeowners have no mortgage. They're debt-free. Now, that means about 57% do have a mortgage. And, and Wait, 43% so, of homeowners have no mortgage? Wow. Correct. That's a, that's that's a big number. 
that stats can date it. Well, because people buy their house like me uh, 25, 30, 40 years ago. And if you have a 25-year mortgage, which most people do, after 25 years, unless you've remortgaged it, you're, you're home free. You're, you're <laughs> mortgage-free, I should say. And, uh, but to your question, um, there, uh, the, the split in mortgage lending is between fixed uh, mortgages and variable-rate mortgages. And fixed rate, you pay a, a higher premium, uh, but then you get locked in for three, four, five years. And uh, the variable rate is just that. It goes up when the rates go up. So those people who took a, a fixed mortgage um, are going to be protected until the end of their term. In other words, the rate will not increase for them. And for those on variable rate mortgage, um, my only advice to you is if you believe that rates are going to continue to go up throughout 2022, I am one of those people that do believe that, uh, my advice to you is to flip over, switch over from variable to fixed. Yes, knowing that the fixed rate is always higher than the variable rate, but the variable rate is going to continue to increase as the central bank, the Bank of Canada, continues to increase its rates. How high? Um, I think, okay, I'll, be, I'll go out on a limb, uh, and I'm basing this on all of the forecasts I've been reading. Right now, the Central Bank of Canada rate is 1% as of today because of this morning's decision. Right, he I said it could go to end, 2 or 3%. I think by the end of this year, it'll be in the mid-twos. Right. So what does that mean for your, for your borrowing, your mortgage rate? So if, it, if the key interest rate is 25 let's say, what is, the, what is, is the bank one point above that? Uh, it, it isn't that um, lock in lockstep. It's uh, partly based on uh, market demand and competition, but um, you'll be lo- the borrowers will be looking at mortgage fixed rates well north of five percent. Um, and again, the ver- to answer your question, I'm, I'm not ducking. It's partly what they're paying on the GIC right. side because they match funds. That's what it's called in banking, is they bring, you know, a billion dollars in of TDRs, and then they lend it back out in mortgages. So you want to match your money. So if you're paying 2% on the, GD, on the TDR to uh, 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 the depositor, then, and you want, let's say, a 3% return, well, then you've got to charge 5%. Right. So you match your funds like that. And uh, so it really depends on, A, where are interest rates going and the borrowing of the investment, the, the central bank rate, and the demand for it. But uh, the rate Rates are going up. Okay, so 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 let's measure. Uh, I, I'm speaking to Ian Lee, uh, and, and he's brilliant, but he doesn't probably know what we call the FOF. And I got to give you, I got to educate you on what the okay. FOF is. Okay, okay? tell me <laughs> the freakout factor. Oh yeah, uh, and I want you to gauge the freakout factor because when should people freak out? And I think the freakout factor is low, and even yeah. if it goes to five percent, Ian. Why the FOF freakout factor is low is historically interest rates at 5% would put them where? Um, with, with interest rates at 5 well, depending on whether you're talking fixed mortgage or a variable rate mortgage. But let's just talk fixed because it's more, yeah. it's more predictable. You'd be looking with a, a central bank rate of 5%. You'd be no, no, no. I'm, I'm not a central Sorry. bank rate of 2 or 3, which would make your mortgage rate 5%. That's right. That's, historically, that's pretty normal. It, it is. You're quite right, and I've been making this argument. I mean, I got my very first property, a garden home and hunt club, in 1976, and I paid 10.25, and I was very happy with that rate. Those were the normal rates of the That's 70s right. before they went through the roof. But, Evan, I just want to make one back to your freakout factor. 
younger people are not used to that. They've never That's experienced that. So this is really apocalyptic. Uh, well, that, and that's why, and I know I got 20, 20 seconds here for Ian Lee, but that's why I want to say, folks, I'm not saying this isn't going to hurt people. It will. And I'm not saying it's it not a lot more. It is. But from a freakout factor, 4 or 5% mortgage rate, folks, in the last 100 years would be below average. Uh, Ian Lee, thanks so much. I got to go to Juno Beach next. You don't want to miss the story. From coast to coast to coast, the newsmakers talk here. This is The Evan Solomon Show. This is a story that many of you connected with, and it touched our hearts. And and you know this. You know this. When we found out, that a French property developer, Francine, is going to build 70-unit condo development on Juno Beach. Juno Beach, where the Canadians landed on D-Day. Juno Beach, where we have a museum. Juno Beach, where thousands of Canadian casualties occurred, almost 400 deaths. Juno Beach is now going to be the home of a condo. So we've had multiple interviews about this. And finally, uh, this week with Carol, we, we found out that the uh, Veterans Affairs Minister and the Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs, Conservative MP Frank Caputo, is going to go to Juneau Beach. Uh, Frank created the uh, support motion for Juneau Beach for the House of Commons. He, he's, in Juneau, he's in France. He's at Juneau Beach today. And, and like many kids, this isn't partisan. This isn't partisan. This isn't blue or red or orange. This is dignity. This is about a moment in time that ought not to be destroyed by a condo. Frank Caputo, conservative MP, shadow minister for Veterans Affairs and a former lawyer joins us. Frank, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm more than pleased that you're in Juneau. At, at the at Juno and in France today, um, tell us how the fight goes to stop this condo. Well, first off, thank you very much, Evan. I've been uh, for having me. I've been watching you for some time, and hopefully, our paths cross in the future in person. Uh, it's a real honor to be in France, and I was able to visit Juno Beach. Uh, in all candor, Evan, I would have liked to have spent even more time just soaking it in because there's so much there. One thing that I underestimated as somebody who had never been to France before, Evan, was the gratitude of the people in France, the people in Belgium, for the Canadian sacrifices that were made in the First and Second World War. Visiting places like Vimy Ridge, those places to me make me feel so honoured, so profoundly proud to be a Canadian and to have a country that participated in the liberation of Europe twice. Well, we just came uh, from the anniversary of Vimy. But I want to talk about Juno yes. Beach. Because, and, and by the way, folks, Frank's not wrong. These are, there's two kinds of travel. There's tourism and there's pilgrimage. And, and you'll know the difference when you suddenly find yourself on a pilgrimage, when you found yourself standing in front of a place like Juno or Vimy or, or, or any place in your life 
whether it's for religious, cultural, or personal reasons. Uh, uh, travel becomes a pilgrimage. And when you go to, this is why this is an important moment, because when you go to Juneau Beach, you're not a tourist. You're not a traveler. You're a pilgrim. And, and, and pilgrimages demand different responses. How's the battle going to, to, to make sure this sacred Canadian place is preserved? Well, Evan, I am prepared to do everything I can uh, in order to do so. Um, I, I, you mentioned earlier that I put forward a motion that was adopted by the committee. I, I recall it was done unanimously, speaking for the committee, saying that uh, we don't want condominiums built. This is what I would call a sacrosanct place, and to have an ominous, what I would call ominous ominous, sorry, pardon me, a, a condominium complex on, on, on the ground where Canadian blood was spilled so that there would be that very freedom to build. Uh, that's, uh, that's something that I think really should be reconsidered. Now, as a Canadian parliamentarian, I believe this does cross party lines. That's why I met with the minister about this and I've had various stakeholder meetings. And this isn't something where it's going to be uh, me um, doing the proverbial, proverbial yelling at the government. This is where we all have to band together as Canadians and implore uh, whatever authorities there are in France to reconsider this decision. And on a moral level, I would implore anybody who's considering purchasing a condominium and the developer to really reconsider this decision. Is there, are there any, there's a moral suasion argument as I speak to Conservative MP, Shadow Minister of Veterans Affairs, Frank Caputo. He's in France right now. He just visited Juneau Beach. But are there any legal or political levers we can pull to say to the French government or this developer, stop, you can't do this? Well, I know that the minister has been fairly unequivocal in stating this. One thing that we, we do have to understand as well, Evan, is that France is in the midst of an election right now. So as a parliamentarian in Canada, the message I want to send is this. Once the new government uh, is sworn in and we're working with them, we will work with whomever to preserve Juno Beach, whether it be through... Uh, pressure on the permit process, um, support however we can. There's an ongoing legal battle because what really makes this interesting, Evan, is that Juno, the Juno Beach Centre owns the road that the developer needs to access. I don't know if the developer knew that when the developer purchased the land. So the only way in is via the Juno Beach Centre's road, which is a private road. So one wonders why we're even going down this path. But as I understand it, there's been protracted litigation on this very point. Um, By so the way, they need the money Beach, for to fight that litigation, as co- according to the Save Juno Beach campaign. Yes, that wouldn't surprise me. As a as a lawyer, I, I can tell you litigation's very expensive, uh, and I'm prepared, obviously, to uh, to encourage people to support the, the Save Juno Beach Foundation. So what other, so they control the road. Um, uh, there, a lot of our listeners, Frank, um, are really concerned about this. They're, they're, they're furious about it. They're insulted by it. Um, what, what, are the, what is the strategy to stop it? Well, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> I want to keep some of the cards closer to my chest because uh, that's, uh, that's not something I, I uh, want to breach any sort of privilege on. Uh, what I can say um, is that what we as Canada should be doing is putting pressure on, um, 
on the French government at the diplomatic level, as in dealing with the ambassador, and also on the local level to let people know at Juneau Beach, uh, people who are in the surrounding areas there, people who might be considering buying a condominium. Look, maybe you want to reconsider this. The Save Juneau Beach Foundation has uh, has done wonderful things. Uh, they're really getting their message out. I'll tell you about two and a half weeks ago, I got my first email about this and I said to my staff, we really got to get out ahead of this because this is going to hit and hit quickly. And within two or three days as shadow minister, I was flooded. This is something that Canadians care about and rightfully so. How long are you there for? Um, I'm in France until tomorrow and then we go to the Netherlands. Well, listen, Frank Caputo, Conservative MP, Shadow Minister for Veterans Affairs. I'm glad you're there. I I know the minister's there. Again, folks, one of the good things about this fight, if there's anything, is it's nonpartisan. And by the way, do you think the Canadians landing on Juneau Beach in 1944 were wondering if the the guy next to them was a conservative, a liberal, or a, you know, uh, it wasn't even the NDP then, but (laughs) CCF? No, they were not. You know what they were wondering? Are you my brother? Do you have my back? And how are we going to restore freedom to this country? And that's what this is all about. Uh, Frank, thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Devin. And thank you for spreading the words, the word. And, and thank you to all those who are participating in this very important discussion. I encourage everybody to check social media with the Save uh, Juno Beach movement. Get on board. Support those who are putting in long hours to make sure that we remember this incredible sacrifice. Yeah, I appreciate that. Fine words, Frank Caputo. I appreciate that. And, And folks, as I said at the beginning of the show, we will follow this story, right? The words, lest we forget, matter. And a condo on Judo Beach undermines the idea of lest we forget. We can't mouth the words lest we forget and not and not do anything we can do to save Juno Beach and just make sure that what happened on June 6, 1944, when the 3rd Infantry Division landed on Juno Beach and we took the fight to the Nazis to Europe, that legacy is preserved. We'll take a break. When we come back, we are going to Manitoba. Sorting through the changes, here's Evan Solomon. Well, it is uh, April 13th. And I'm just waiting for spring, and I'm looking at the flowers popping up. But if you are in southern Manitoba, my God, it's so Canadian. You're in a wicked, dangerous, nasty snowstorm. And if you're in Portage La Prairie, 40 to 60 centimeters for the western Red River Valley, including Portage. Like, this is monster, monster, monster snow. And the mayor of Portage La Prairie is Irvin uh, Ferris and Mayor Ferris joins us now. Oh my gosh, Mayor, even for the hardiest of hardy Manitobans, and I work with one of them, this is bonkers. How are you guys doing? Oh, good morning, Evan. Um, so far, so good. Uh, you know, we've had a few days to prepare for this, and and uh, we've, we've been down this road actually before. Um, two and a half years ago, Thanksgiving weekend, we had a huge ice storm, 
And uh, we learned a lot of things from that. Um, so I feel like we're a lot better prepared as a city this time. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's huge. And they tell us, Environment Canada tells us there's going to be two waves. So we're just at kind of the front end of the first wave. And then tonight apparently it's going to let up a bit. But then it's really going to come back on us tomorrow again. So, um, yeah, it's... Um, you know, I can't remember. I think I'd have to go back to 1997 to remember a storm this big in April. Yeah. And at that time, um, it was a huge storm. And then for the next three or four weeks, we were sandbagging. Uh, it sent the red into flood, and most of a lot of southern Manitoba mm. was affected by that. So um, we're hoping we're right near the Assiniboine here in Portage, and the red is, of course, towards Winnipeg. And the Assiniboine was in okay shape prior to this, pretty much. Uh, so we're we're hoping this doesn't really up the flood risk that much, but we'll have to see. Yeah, and, and I want uh, first of all, Mayor, I'm just going to give for those people. Someone's asking me, where's Portage, folks? Picture Winnipeg. Go 75 clicks east along the Assiniboine River, which is a kind of to describe the Assiniboine. It's like you know, it's like a, a worm that's all curled up. It it, it ducks and deeks all over the place. It's not a straight river, the Assiniboine. There's lots. It's a very bendy little uh, big river, actually. And then, of course, when it hits Winnipeg, that's where you get the uh, Assiniboine and the red. And, and, and when you get this kind of April um, April snow, aren't you worried about a massive spring flood afterwards, Mayor? Well, that, that's certainly a concern. Our immediate worry, really, we prepared for everything. Uh, what we went through here during the Thanksgiving storm two years ago, uh, was massive power outages. Our, our 90% of our city was knocked out, and of course the region, and that was ice forming on the line. So we were hoping for colder weather today. Our, our temperature right now is hovering around zero, so the snow is very heavy and sticky, and uh, we're, we're really nervous about losing power. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, that, that was a huge challenge, um, the last storm we had, because obviously our, our infrastructure, a lot of it runs on electrical, your lift stations, all that kind of thing. So uh, it, during the last two years, we've uh, bought a number of new large generators, put them into place. We have backup plans for fueling those generators and fueling cars and that kind of thing. Uh, the other thing we had to contend with last time was a huge number of people stranded on the Trans-Canada Highway. So the RCMP have closed the Trans-Canada from Winnipeg to the Saskatchewan border. They did that early. Mm. So we, we've got an emergency shelter, obviously, in our community. We open up for people that are stranded. And um, part of the challenge last time was even after the highways opened, there was no electricity. Uh, we couldn't gas up these vehicles. You can't pump gas without electricity. So um, we're thinking that we'll see hopefully less people stranded this time. Well, I'll tell you. So I want people to be, to put this into perspective. You've got between 40 and 60 centimeters. So you're talking about between a foot and two feet of snow in, what, 48 hours, maybe slightly more. That is a monster amount of snow. Now, are you guys all snow-free in Portage La Prairie right now? Uh, well, we we were making a lot of progress. We still had some big banks. This was the winter when we had a lot of snow. Uh, so they were coming down pretty good. I had a little bit of grass poking through in the front yard so it's it's of course everything's completely covered and we have some um, large drifts forming we have our uh, every piece of equipment we have all of our staff are out they're actually doing roads right now and and they have a plan obviously keep the priority um, roads open 
for fire services, uh, police, ambulance, that kind of thing. Um, and right now, this morning, really what we've been dealing with is just helping some of our community partners ensure that uh, they can continue to operate. So we've got a local snowmobile club. Uh, they're going to be providing ro- um, rides to nursing staff, healthcare workers that have to get to work. So uh, it's just those kind of things, a lot of moving parts to it. And tell me now, now you go 75 clicks east, you got it, you're going to hit the peg. And the Assiniboine and the Red River hit at the, at the famous forks, as we all know. Um, are, they, are they getting hit as hard, and are they expecting floods, uh, Mayor? Yeah, most of southern Manitoba will experience probably the same snowfall we have here. So Winnipeg may get a little bit less, uh, but I know the red was already up. Uh, they closed the bridge at Selkirk earlier this week, so they really don't need a whole lot more moisture right now. Uh, the one thing we're kind of hoping for, and, and so far the, the um, weather forecast is for uh, below zero temperatures for the next four or five days, so that will slow the melt, which will help. This is a this the, the you know this is monster. Um, so 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 how are you like our folks packing up food and preparing uh, our folks you know because are they getting generators out? I mean because this could be a nasty week ahead. Yeah, are they uh, sandbagging? The last two days, no sandbagging yet. <laughs> uh, by the way, my from. my I tell you, there's some sandbagging going on in Winnipeg. There is a bit in Winnipeg, but none out here. Um, so, so far, the last two days, people have spent time. Uh, I know the grocery stores were busy. I was at the gas station yesterday. People have, you know, gassed up their vehicles, some extra gas for generators, um, also propane. So you've got a barbecue that you can operate if you're two or three days without power. And when we went through this Thanksgiving, the city of Porridge, we had some parts out for four days. But the rural areas, some of them were out for a couple of weeks. So... It was a, a big strain on the hydro infrastructure in this area, for sure. All right. Well, good luck. Um, I could tell you, man, that, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it's not what's about to happen in Portage and Winnipeg and the entire southern region. You know, I just can't imagine here we are in April. This is a this is a weird one, right? This is not usual. I mean, I know it's happened, but this is not the expectation. Yeah, so, we don't get these all the time in April, but, uh, it, you know, we have to go back quite a few years, but uh, it has happened, and uh, we'll deal with it as it comes, for sure. I love that attitude. Uh, can, you, <laughs> can you just move to Ottawa and bring us that can-do? Well, I've, the next best thing, my youngest son lives in Ottawa, actually. He was saying the weather's a lot better there. Than well, and you know, you know life's bad when Ottawa can say the weather's better, because Ottawa rarely gets to say that. But I guess if you're the mayor of Portage La Prairie, as Irvin uh, Ferris is, um, we can. Hey, listen, Mayor, thank you, sir, uh, to your citizens and, and your, your incredible citizens. Uh, just bear through this one, get through it. We hope there's no flood and no power outages, and uh, we're thinking of you. And, and take good care. Get some rest if you can. you got a long day coming up. Thanks, Evan. Much appreciated. You yeah, and, and, and uh, we'll take care of your son if you need anything here in the Capitol. Uh, that's the mayor of Portage La Prairie, Irvin Ferris. Uh, I, I'm just going to say it because I feel it. I love this country. It's such a joy to talk to people like that. Like, you know, he's facing 40 to 60 centimeters. It's like, ah, we'll deal with it. Okay, the war room's up. What a country we live in, folks. Stay with us.
You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. It is that time of the week when we get inside the war room. Let me be perfectly clear. Putting out misinformation. And we hear that. Misleading politics. What's really important here. Spreading it online. Unequivocally. The War Room. Now you might think with Tim Powers, Tom Mulcair, and Zane Velge in the room, I'd have to do some deflation on their brilliance. But no, I'm only going to inflate it. The chairman of Summa Strategies and the provider of good soda and beer is here, Tim Powers. The CTV political analyst and the former leader of the NDP, a lawyer, uh, the father of a cop, and just a great guy, Tom Mulcair is here, and Zane Velge's here. Oh, sorry. Political campaign strategist and partner at North Northweather, who worked the at name with, speaks for itself, Evan. It you does. don't need to. You don't listen. Need that. Listen, I hate. To, I hate saying it. I hate to say it because he knows it. He's brilliant, uh, Calgary. Uh, he worked with Calgary mayor and the former uh, premier. No, he is brilliant, Zane Velge. So, so gents, uh, welcome. Kind, you guys are brilliant. I, I mean, this is the thing. There's. Being a journalist, you have to learn one thing very quickly. You have to be comfortable being the dumbest guy in the room. And that's fine. I like it. And, and, and that's why we will start today. Let's start with the politics of inflation and Mulcair. Um, how is, look, the key interest rate goes up 50 basis points, is up to 1%. Uh, governor says it could go to 2 or 3%. Still historically low, but in the last 20 years, you know, or 10 years anyway, it's high. What is the political impact of this for the government and for the conservative leadership race? Well, I think it's your point when you say, Evan, that we've been living these very low interest rates for so long that people think it's normal. It's not normal. Uh, yeah. Catherine and I bought our first place in the early 80s. <laughs> the guy at the bank said, oh, take one year. It's never been this high. It was 13 and percent. He says it won't stay at 13 and He was right. We renewed it 21 one year later. Oh my so God. this is the reality of inflation and so the states just posted 8.5 the brits just posted seven the tiff macklem is trying to get the word out there i think that our budget is going to appear quaint two or three years down the road when everybody was worried about well, what can the government do to lower housing prices guess what if your first mortgage instead of being at one and a half or two percent is seven and a half percent that's going to bring down the cost of housing in canada so this is playing into everything i just filled up the the gas tank Two bucks a liter. I, this is the new normal, and it's not going to—it's not going to be going down. No. It's only going to be going up. Right. So, Tim, what does that mean politically, both for the government, because you know, housing prices are the big affordability issue. Uh, this is driving the conservative leadership race. How is this cutting um, politically? Well, there's a reason over, what, 400,000 people uh, watch Pierre Polyev's video on housing affordability. Uh, there's some new data out, as you know, today, Evan, from Abacus, and there's been a string of this from us at Abacus that's looking at, you know, housing in particular. And there are a lot of young people politically who are potentially shopping around a little yeah. bit more than they were before for political parties that are addressing their imperatives. Just look at one budget measure last week. On on the face of it, it's, it's a measure I like, but I have a house and I'm slightly over 40, so it doesn't qualify for me, but that tax-free savings account for home ownership, that's a great idea. But who has the money to put it in there because the cost of everything else? 
So, you know, Tom's right. This all might be seen as quite quaint afterwards. People may just have to hold on with their fingernails for the next six or eight months and just get through this. But the Conservatives and the NDP, I suspect, though, with less credibility, Mm. given the the alliance with the Liberals, are going to push this hard to show that the government is out of touch with the immediate needs of people. I just want to define, uh, uh, Zane, before I get to you, the... Tim's used the word slightly as in I'm slightly <laughs> over 40. Now. I just Careful I just want to say, I guess, in two, speaking of inflation, slightly now covers 20 years. So go ahead. Uh, <laughs> it just covers a general <laughs> principle we're, now. We're, we're, we're ageifying down as a society. This yeah, is, I didn't, this I didn't is know great. that. This is good. This is good yeah, news. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. This is, this is, you this are is older excellent. than me, I should point out. Sorry, well, that's Tim. why go I'm ahead. encouraging you to use the word slightly to really grab bag everything. <laughs> We're slightly older than 20. Oh, yeah, go ahead, Zane. Let me, let me give a slightly different take than uh, Tim's here. So um, the, the political issue here for the Trudeau government is the same, that, that there is no silver bullet mechanism that at least the government with their budgets and their rhetoric can uh, solve this inflation crisis. And in fact, it's a problem partially of their own making, not the fact that it's global, but because they ignored it for so long, because they never acknowledged it for a long time, that they gave answers like childcare is a solution to inflation. And now that it's hit people significantly more and interest rates will actually have a, a, a ramification on things like housing that we've mentioned, it becomes a problem because it's not in this government's message box. It's not something they want to talk about. It is not something they want to spend time on. If you're on the other side, to Tim's point here, you know, 400,000 people watching that video, 5,000 people in person last night in my city in Calgary show up to Pierre Polyevra. And he, and, and he, you know, talks about, of course, the life story. But what does he hit on? Cost of living, inflation, things that arguably he's the one to put into the cultural zeitgeist before they became popular. And here he is. Every time it is mentioned in any way, it is a massive win for the guy because his ability to communicate and say, I've been with you with you on this, while simultaneously having the language that is simple and easy to understand, that emotionally people feel around, yeah, free me from this you know, H-E double hockey sticks related to the pandemic, the housing crisis, everything, you know, is is a is is a very winning message, perhaps, for Pierre Polyev. So every time it's mentioned, not good news for the government. Yeah. And Tom, does it matter? Look, there's a lot of debate about it. Let's give credit where credit's due. The guy that identified and owned the inflation issue first. Pierre Polyevra. Did he diagnose exactly. the did he diagnose the causes right? A lot of people say no. Does he Definitely have the prognosis <laughs> to solve it? Maybe not. What is the value though of owning this issue? Right back to what Zane just said. I, I think that's the key. Simple language, people can understand his message. And he has understood something that, for example, Jean Charret has not understood. Jean Charret is very good at election campaigns, a general election. Watch out. Charest is amazing. Great in debate, by the way. That's going to be something to watch as well. But Charest never won a leadership race. The only one that he was ever in was against Kim Campbell. She beat him. And then when he came in and became my boss, because I was already in the Quebec Liberal Party caucus, when he became leader, he made it a condition. He wasn't going to come unless they twisted the right number of arms and nobody was going to run against Mm. him. So he's in uncharted territory for himself right now. He's got a little bit of the Blarney. He's proud of his Irish roots. Can I tell you that his story about actually not really working to help Huawei with 5G, he was more like, well, almost you could think trying to help 
the two Michaels. That was something that he spun. You know, it was a bit of a nose stretcher, but I, I know the guy so well. I worked with him for, for decades. And I can tell you, you know, he was just sort of walking around the edges of this story saying, well, I better not put more of that into it. And then in that landmark debate <laughs> that you moderated <sighs> between Tasha Carradine and so uh, Jenny Byrne, Carradine yes. grabbed that two Michaels yarn and turned it into reality. But all she actually did to poor Charette was put a big chalk circle around it, and everybody's going to want to revisit it now, saying, you mean your law firm wasn't really helping Huawei with 5G? Yes, they were. Uh, you were actually helping them, the two Michaels? Uh, not, you know, that's, you know, the Pinocchio scale goes all the way from slight nose stretcher all the way over to, <laughs> pants, on, to, pan, to pants on fire. This one is a pants on fire story. And I well, think the uh, shadow's going to have checked, trouble with it. I've checked with uh, sources in the two Michaels camp, and they will only say, on the record, we'll have to say he's very helpful. <laughs> but they will not speak mm. off the record, and I, which means yeah. there's more to say, but we're not going to say it. Yeah, I mean, look, the, the, Huawei put out a very official release saying that Mr. Charest and his law firm worked on the issues that involve Huawei, and the, there was nothing else. So, I mean, I'm going mm. to hang my, my hat on that until yeah, somebody I, can you're, prove you're, you're not wrong. Uh, okay, let, let me take a break. I want to get back to that. You you talked about that debate. This is open warfare, and I'll, I'll go to Tim and Zane and then back to you, Tom. Um, it's it's unbelievable. You know, Charest says uh, Polyeva should be disqualified. Polyeva said Charest right. should be disqualified for the Huawei work. Uh, Patrick Brown's a liar, according to Pierre Polyeva. Uh, pa uh, Pierre Polyeva's a, a lawbreaker, according to Brown. I tweeted this out <laughs> yesterday. This isn't the gloves are off. They've burned the gloves. I just don't know where this ends. It's a brawl. What will be left? Is it more destructive than productive? The war room on the conservative leadership race next. sense of the latest news you're listening to the evan solomon show welcome back is the conservative race productive i mean after i got 12 campaigns there's a real robust debate going on seems productive thousands of people are showing up at meetings as they race till the uh, membership sign-up deadline or is it destructive i mean jean charret was on uh, ctv question period with me and he basically said I don't just disagree with Pierre Pauly ever. His support of the truckers means he should be disqualified. And if you say to Canadians, I want to be the leader of the Conservative Party and I want to be the chief legislator of the country, but I don't have to obey the laws, I'm sorry. That's not just a failure in leadership. It disqualifies you. Meantime, Pierre Polyevre, who's attracting big crowds, is, is has called, you know, Charest a liberal and a liar. He's called... Uh, Patrick Brown, a, a liar. And meantime, he's also not just attacking, he's focusing on the cost of living. Here's a snippet of, he's in Vancouver, he's standing in front of, I did like this almost five minute video, it's gone super viral, check this out. The cost of government is driving up the cost of living. We need to fix the, the monetary system to ensure it no longer inflates asset values out of reach. And we need to get the local gatekeepers out of the way so that we can build more homes. In other words, stop printing money, start building houses. 
All right, uh, Tim, Tim, let me start. There's like two questions here. One, is it destructive or productive to the party? Because I've never seen a, a race like this. But second of all, um, how do you interpret big crowds? You know, on one hand, people say that's the big movement. He's the front runner. Others say, yeah, big crowds don't mean big membership sign up. What, what's your view on that? Well, the, this reference requires no slightness about it, about the crowds, Evan. It's not the size of the crowd. It's how you use the crowd. And uh, the, the thing with the size of those crowds is what, what, what do they actually mean in real terms? Full credit to the Sorry, I don't get the camp. reference. Can you just really break that one <laughs> yeah, down? Yeah, it's just more Could you, just, can you break that down? Guan, I think yeah. we're all just sitting here saying, what's he talking Just go ahead, just really slowly. Thank just you, Tim. Break, no, yeah. go, go ahead, Tim. No, no, no. It's okay. I know that. The bathroom humor. So wrong. So wrong. But a applicable, apparently, because of what's happening with the conservative leadership race at the moment. The thing with the crowds, they are being fed to everyone by the Polyev team. Full credit to them for using them as a tool to forecast momentum, to suggest that they have proper engagement, and they may. But we don't know any what they really mean uh, until we actually get to sometime after June 3rd when we know about uh, if there were conversions, who bought memberships, and the like. But the Polyev team, because he won't do what Mr. Sheree and others are doing, Evan, which is sit down and talk to you, is setting an agenda. And again, credit to him. We just talked about his housing video. Where do we get it? He gave it to us. The crowd, he gave us that. He's doing very well on those fronts. Uh, so suggest they're pretty good at what they do, but can they win? Will they win? Don't know. Um, as it relates to the tension in the Conservative Party, go back to Tom's Irish reference. You know, it's a bit like the Irish wake now at the 2 a.m. part. The loving, the hugging, the kissing, <laughs> your great guys all been done. We've all had five <laughs> bottles of scotch and the fists are flying. And that's not going to stop until somebody gets KO'd. And there's a whole generation, last point, whole generation of activists that grew up from through the Harper years who don't understand humility they, they, they value hubris, who don't understand pragmatism, they value pugilism, and they're all now in positions where they are taking leadership roles in these races and applying those skills that they learned. So you're seeing them play out in real time. Okay, Zane, what, what's your read? You run campaigns. You're, you're seeing big crowds. Yeah. By the way, Leslie Lewis is attracting crowds. Uh, Patrick Brown signing up memberships doesn't mean they all have to be doing it on camera. They're, they're doing it uh, all over the place. What is your read on the nastiness, the crowds, and what it means for the membership? I mean, for a long time, we've been talking about this race being the soul-searching event for the Conservative Party of Canada. What do we think a soul-searching event would look like? I, you know, for one, thought it would look like this. It would be pugilistic, to Tim's point. It would be scorched earth. It would be divisive. I mean, I think this is short-term not good for the party, but long-term, this is what they've needed to do. This is exactly what they said. They've got 10 years of a Harper government. There's one faction here that says, we've shown you the proof points. It's a decade of governing. Mm. And there's another side that says, well, we need to be the progressive conservatives to attract a greater base of people as the country moves further and further to the left. I mean, this is the debate that they wanted and they're getting it. So I think long-term, this is going to be advantageous, one might hope, for the party to at least pick a focal point or else they're going to turf leaders every year. As it relates to the crowd, you know, Devin, you use the term viral for uh, Pure Polyev's video. I'm going to use that same term, but not as like a throwaway virality sort of, you know, it's going viral. There is there is degrees of organizing. There's campaigns that don't organize and they pay the price. There are campaigns that are really good at organizing. And then there's campaigns that just go viral. Mm. 
And I've been on the inside of one that has, and I've had it happen to me, which is campaigns that you show up and you say, I've whipped 1,500 people to show up to this event, 5,000 show up. And you're like, these weren't on any of our lists. Where are these people coming from? I suspect what's happening now on the Pierre Polyev front is a sense of virality, is the growth that's happening beyond the membership base. And the advantage that he has is that his rhetoric seems much more in line with the existing membership base. But then you add on top of that, this very simple message of freedom gravitating and magnetizing so many others to his candidacy he's playing with fire here. You know, I said last week, if I'm Sheree or Brown, I'm not worrying so much, but I'm worrying now, now that this is, this is entering in mm. proof points of virality, even my regional dominant strategy, if I'm Brown or Sheree, may not be able to overcome this. So you got uh, Tim Powers uh, with virility. You've got uh, Zane with virality. Where are you going to take this, Tom? <laughs> well, I was so surprised when I heard Shai in his interview with you on question period, simply affirm that Poiliev was disqualified as a candidate because there's a, a simple truth about Jean Charest's perception of who he is and what's going on in the Conservative Party after he's been a liberal in Quebec for 25 years. He's going to lecture them on what it is to be a good conservative. He's actually going to tell the whole establishment of the Conservative Party, oh, I know you've got your rules and you've already determined that Pierre Poiliev is an absolutely qualified candidate, but I'm going to tell you he's disqualified. And, and, and that can't work. And he's saying that he's the candidate of unity, and yet he's looking at the members of caucus, far many more of whom follow Mr. Poiliev than him. He's got the Quebec caucus on side pretty well, nobody else so far. And he's going to lecture everybody about how wrong they are because he's going to unite them behind him where he's taking out a blowtorch. With regard to, uh, there is one point that you made that I think it's worth getting back to, the, the bit about Poiliev challenging basically somebody using very sketchy means to buy membership cards. Mm. I think that Poiliev is absolutely right to call that out now. This can't be a the prepaid, the pre, Just explain that, Tom. The prepaid yes. credit cards, uh, their campaign yes. has not made a specific allegation, but they're concerned that prepaid credit cards could be used for electoral fraud. It is legal yes. to use those in the race, by the way. Yes, but what's not legal is for somebody to pay somebody else's membership card. Right. And there are quotes from other candidates. I believe it was Mr. Brown who was quoted years ago in a different context, but nonetheless saying, oh, everybody knows that other people pay for your membership card. You're not allowed to do that. It's about you paying. It's not a lot. It's like 15 bucks, but you've got to pay it yourself. Otherwise, you wind up with numbers and codes that will allow a whole bunch of votes to get registered, but they might not actually correspond to what we commonly call human beings. So Poilier is, is going to the courts or he's threatening to do it. And, you know, the courts are taking an interesting approach on this. Remember a couple of years ago, the NDP had a candidate from Toronto who was a bit of an original one. He had nothing to do with the party, but he had some dough and he said he wanted to take over the party. Well, lo and behold, he sued the party when they said he couldn't be a candidate. Now, the judge said, look, your rules are fair and you applied them fairly. You're allowed to have those rules deciding who's going to be um, a candidate. But he said, don't come to the courts and try to tell us that we can't look at what's going on inside a political party because you are a right. cornerstone of our democratic institutions. Right. And I think that Poiliev is on to something here. Okay, I got a minute here. Um, so I don't really have time for one of your genius interventions. So I'm going to wrap it up. Because you've all mentioned the Irish wake, I will just say to all of you, as you slide down the banister of life, may the splinters never point the wrong way. Or as they say in the Conservative Party, may they always point the wrong way to each other. Uh, yeah, this is a, I will just say this. Um, I've never seen a race this nasty, this fast, but it really shows you 
that this conservative party is, there's two visions of a party, not two visions of policy, two visions of a party, the charade version yeah. and the polyevra yeah. version so far. Uh, and, and that's remarkable. Uh, all right. Uh, Zane, Tom, uh, and, and, and Tim, what a great uh, panel. Thanks, gents. Enjoy the week. Okay, Stay next safe. week. Hug your take love. Care. Thanks take so care. much. we got to take See a break. We'll be right back. your world changes we adapt to get your answers now more with evan solomon governments around the world are all trying to figure out how far will vladimir putin go in ukraine doesn't matter how many losses the russians have taken or how badly it's gone we have seen there is no bottom to the moral corruption and the horrific attacks there, the leveling of cities, the alleged use of chemical attacks, the alleged war crimes. What is behind Vladimir Putin? Well, governments are phoning one guy to try to figure this guy out. They're phoning Bill Browder. Now, you've met Bill on this show before. Bill's the founder and CEO of Hermitage uh, Capital Management. He went to Russia years ago, I think it was like 96 set up a company that became the largest foreign investment fund in Russia. But then his company, as they were investing, were uncovering all sorts of corruption. And his lawyer, a young, brave lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered a potential uh, corruption scheme worth hundreds of millions of dollars. He was arrested by the Russians. And he was murdered, brutally. And since that time... There has been a personal war between Vladimir Putin and Bill Browder. Now, Putin's tried to, Putin has murdered Browder's friends. Putin has tried to arrest Browder, incriminate Browder, told lies about Browder. And it's all outlined again in his second book. His first book was the incredible best-selling Red Notice. But the new book out is called Freezing Order, a true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. And and Bill joins me now. Uh, Bill, um, I know you're you're just the busiest man, so I can't tell you how much I always appreciate you joining us regularly on this program. I want to start with 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 Ukraine, and then I want to get to freezing order, which I finished and and I couldn't put it down. Um, Bill, when people ask you how far will Putin go, what do you tell governments? Um, <clears throat> he he will stop at nothing, up to and including. Um, setting off a nuclear bomb in in Ukraine. I mean, he could kill a million or two million people, and, and and his heart wouldn't start beating faster, and it wouldn't bother him in any way. He's a man with absolutely no morals, um, no empathy, and no and no boundaries. He's a, a a true mass murderer, and we should um, whatever we've seen and whatever heartbreaks we've experienced so far, I think it's just a small taste of what Vladimir Putin has in store. And, and I dread to think of the future because it's just going to be so bleak. Well, I want to get to how you come to that conclusion because it's a long and horrific journey. But but just in the, in the particular context of Ukraine, what is then the end game here? Everybody always asks me, what is the end game? And, and the answer is, there is no end game. I mean, Putin, if he were to win in Ukraine, he would then move on to some other country. He maybe move on to Moldova, or he might even go after the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. 
Or, or if he gets those places, then he'd go on to Sweden or Finland, which aren't members of NATO. I mean, Putin has no end. There is no end game. He just wants to dominate everybody around him. And so when we talk about an end game, it's not like, there, you know, if you just if we just tell him that Ukraine won't join NATO, then everything will be OK. Or if we tell him that, uh, you know, I, I don't know, that, we, that Ukraine will will uh, not join the European Union or whatever it is that he's upset about, that, there is, that, that doesn't solve any of the problem. He, he's not in this war for any specific goal other than to be in war. He's a dictator. But why? Like, I understand. Look, I know he's driven by philosophies. I'm speaking to Bill Browder, the author of Freezing Order and the man behind the Magnitsky sanctions, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, Bill, um, I know he's driven by a philosophy to regain lost territory, right? The old Soviet territory. He doesn't believe in the existence of Ukraine. He thinks it's just part of Russia. I understand that. I know that there's an ethno-nationalism that he's driven by some sort of far-right, fascistic-like philosophers. I understand that as well. But but does war also consolidate his power domestically? Well, I would argue that, that all those things about ethno-nationalism and recreating the Soviet Union are all just arguments to sell to the Russian people so they have something to rally around. I think his main thing is that he's been around for 22 years. He's stolen in an unbelievable, unimaginable amount of money from the Russian people. They've been living really rough, unpleasant lives without doctors and teachers and you know public services. And, and he thinks that at some point they're going to rise up above against him in the, in the same way as we've seen so many other dictators around the world um, eventually get thrown out. And, and so what does a dictator do when, when they're in a ten, tenuous situation which could bu- bust against them in any moment? They start a war. And this is not new technology. This has been going on for time immemorial that, that, that the guys who are who are dictators who are in trouble start wars. And, and this war is working for him so far. His approval ratings have gone through the roof. He's up at 83 percent approval ratings after this war. You know, and those aren't fake approval ratings. So the, these Russian people are all on board with this crazy man. And then, of course, they don't know the truth about what's going on, that they, they think that there's they're having a successful humanitarian military operation, short-term operation in Ukraine uh, to clean out some Nazis. Um, but but um, but you know, based on the, the spin that he's put into Russia, and, and they they don't have many alternative spins, um, they're all happy with him. And so this war is about him staying in power. And if that's the reason why he's doing it, then it's different than saying mm-hmm. you know, okay, you can. I mean, it, there was no negotiation we could have with him that would that would solve this problem. And so. There's only one outcome. There's, or there's two outcomes, basically. Either Ukrainians win or he wins. And if he wins, then, then there's going to be the next stop is going to be us. If the Ukrainians win, which is, which is unlikely but possible, if the Ukrainians win, then he loses power. He, he can't be a loser. He can't, he, will, right. he can't be a weak loser. He, he, he has to be a strong dictator. Speaking to Bill Browder about this, um, yeah, we, we used to call it wag the dog. I guess he's slaughter the dogs. Uh, Bill, how much you said he's worth two hundred billion, and I want to get to this because all this goes back. You know this. You've you've long investigated essentially the the corruption that is endemic there. How much is he worth when you talk about? Oh, he's he's rich. How rich? Well, back in two thousand seventeen, I testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee that he was worth two hundred billion dollars. That was five years ago. I think he's worth a lot more than that now. So we can say well north of $200 billion, um, which is just an obscene amount of money. 
And it's particularly obscene when there are so many people suffering in Russia that don't have access to even the most basic medical services and the most basic things that, that normally you'd have in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of what should be a reasonably developed country. Russia should be, I wouldn't say maybe wealthy, but certainly middle class country. But that's not how it appears. For but he people. doesn't own it, right? It's like he's he, Bill Browder, he's. It's the oligarchs that are essentially running it for them. And you talk about this with his best old childhood friend, a cellist who's worth $2 billion. Like, like he's, he's made this so it's hard to pin it on him. Yeah, of course. He, he, he's made it so it's impossible to pin it on him. He's a former KGB spy. He knows how this stuff works, and he's not going to let anyone you know, use, that, use any real information to get him. And so what he does is, is all of his money is not held by himself. Is held by people who are his trustees. You mentioned the cellist. His best friend from childhood is a cellist who plays cello in St. Petersburg. And for some unknown reason, this cellist has been transferred $2 billion by oligarchs and Russian state banks. Of course, it's not an unknown reason. The reason is that this cellist is his, his friend and he's the nominee for Vladimir Putin, this guy, Sergei Roldugin. He looks after Putin's money. And there's probably... Many of these people, hundreds of them, who are also looking after Putin's money, people he trusts, some of them are oligarchs and some of them are these these weird characters that you'd never imagine. And that's how he holds his money. And those are the people we need to be sanctioning when we want to go after Vladimir Putin. I'm speaking to Bill Browder, and we're going to talk about sanctions, because how, how do you sanction this and, and can they work? Uh, I'm going to take a break. When we come back, I want to get into the true story of money laundering, murder, and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. The new book is Freezing Order. It's by Bill Browder. What happened to Bill, what happened to Bill's dearest friends is going to shock you. And, and you wonder, how far will Vladimir Putin go in Ukraine? How far would he go after a guy in the U.S., a guy in London? Poisonings. Insane legal actions to try to create a criminal out of Bill Browder. And and when you hear the story, it's it's almost unbelievable. So Bill, stick around. We've got a second block with Bill Browder and Freezing Order. You don't want to miss this. Finding answers to all your questions. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show. If you ever wanted to know how far Vladimir Putin will go in Ukraine, ask how far he'll go to get Bill Browder. It's a microcosm of the obsession and immorality of Vladimir Putin. Bill Browder was the founder and CEO of Hermitage Capital Management. He became a billionaire as the largest foreign investor in charge of that investment fund in Russia in the late 90s. And then something went terribly wrong when he and his team uncovered enormous corruption. And he outlines how Vladimir Putin, how far Putin and Russia went to get him in his new book, Freezing Order, a true story of Russian money laundering, murder, and surviving Putin's wrath. Uh, Bill Browder joins me now. Bill, just remind us, and I know you talked about this in your best-selling book, Red Notice, what happened to your lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, and how did this sort of trigger this this battle with Putin? Sergey discovered a $230 million tax rebate fraud 
which was committed by a bunch of Russian government officials and organized criminals. Um, and he exposed it and he testified against the officials involved. And after he testified against them, the same officials arrested him, put him in pretrial detention, tortured him for 358 days and killed him on November 16, 2009. That was a little more than 12 years ago. And uh, since then, I've given up my life as a fund manager and as a business person to focus on the, uh, to make sure that the people who killed him face justice. And that's what I've been doing full time for the last 13 years. It's been remarkable. In the meantime, it's not been easy. This book outlines um, how far Putin and his cronies have gone to stop you. Let's just start there. He, he, he wanted to arrest you. But he then said, actually, the real criminal here are not the people Bill Browder says. It's actually Bill Browder who's the criminal. Bill Browder stole $230 million. What have they done to criminalize you, Bill? Well, exactly that. So th this is one of these weird things that the Russians do, which is you accuse them of the crimes that they've committed, and then they accuse you of the very same crimes. And we've seen this, like, it's happening right now in Ukraine, for example. You know, they, they massacre civilians and then blame the Ukrainians what they did with me. They, they said Bill Browder is the criminal and Sergei Magnitsky was the criminal. They put us both. So they, they stole $230 million of taxes that we paid to the Russian government. They stole it from the Russian government. It's all documented. Um, we exposed it and then they killed Sergei Magnitsky. And then after that, they put Sergei Magnitsky on trial three years after they killed him, mm. the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia, me on trial as his co-defendant found us both guilty. They couldn't do anything more to Sergei than they already did. And they sentenced me to nine years in absentia in a Russian prison. I mean, it's just remarkable how these people operate. They put a dead man on trial. But I don't think what, what, what shocked me about this book, Bill, and, and I'd read, read, notice you, I don't know how many conversations I've had with you over the years, many. I didn't realize the extent in which they chased you. Like, talk about what happened in Madrid. Talk about the what's called a honey trap. Like, how far have they gone to grab you? So to, the, to the edge of the earth. So, for example, I, I had found some of the money from the Magnitsky crime in Spain. The, 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 the crime that Sergei Magnitsky was killed over, some of it went to purchase luxury property in Spain. So I, I took that information and I filed a complaint with a Spanish prosecutor. He took up the case. He invited me to Madrid to give him formal witness statement on our complaint. And then the, the morning before my interview with him, I was arrested outside my hotel room by a different division of the Spanish police acting on the Russians' request <laughs> to have me arrested. So just think about this. I, I, I'm, I'm working with the Spanish to go after the Russian crooks, and those same crooks <laughs> used the Spanish police to have me arrested. And it was only because I, I publicized this on Twitter so that the whole world woke up while I was being arrested. I was, they didn't take my phone away that, um, that I was let go because it was such an, a shameful embarrassment by the Spanish to be working with the Russians on this thing. But, and that was just one example. You mentioned the honey trap. I, I, was, um, I was at an international uh, political conference called the OSC, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. They have this mass gathering, and that year they did it in Monaco. I show up in Monaco. To, give a, to, to try to get them to pass a Magnitsky resolution. All countries do a Magnitsky Act. I'm standing in line at the reception, at the dinner reception, and some six-foot blonde woman starts rubbing up on my back, and I sort of turn around, who is this person? And, um, and, and at, at, later on, she's sort of hanging around. I'm talking to a bunch of politicians. Everyone asks me for my business card. I hand it out to everybody. 
And then I, I go home to not home, but to my hotel, and I, I get these um, these emails from this woman like wanting to come to my hotel room, and and it's it was just you know obvious. <laughs> right, they're like, and and but that's I'm, not I'm, nothing. I'm, I mean, it, it's incredible, Bill. That and I don't want you to talk about your appearance. How do you know she didn't find you incredibly sexy? But I know it was a, it was a honey trap. But Bill. They hired sleazy American lawyers from like white shoe famous firms in New York to carry out cases. They they were in Washington. The penetration of the Russian influence into Washington was one of the shockers to me. It was unbelievable. So I mean, we know that Vladimir Putin is a monster, but and and all his people in in Russia. But the, the people, I mean, what, what what's so surprising about my experience and what I, I hope I will communicate to the rest of the world is that. They were doing. They had a whole bunch of Americans and, and British and, and other national Western nationalities that were being paid to run operations for, effectively for the Russian government and Russian intelligence in Washington, in New York, in London, in in all sorts of countries. And these people were were happily happily taking Russian money to do the, the Russian FSB's dirty work. And, and I find that truly shocking. And, and the fact that there are no defenses set up to stop this stuff. And this, I mean, I'm just one example. Many other people have been targeted in the same thing. Unbelievable. Truly unbelievable. One, one of the reasons why uh, uh, Putin is obsessed with Bill Browder, folks, and Bill outlines this in the book, is in trying to investigate what happened to the 230-odd million from this fraud, he exposed not only, as he said, that Vladimir Putin might have $230 billion, but I'll read from, from page 291, if we could lift the hood of every Western bank, I estimate we'd find that the amount of dirty money that has moved out of Russia since Putin took power would be a trillion dollars or more. In other words, he's protecting a mass kleptocracy. This book is about money laundering. This war is about money laundering. And his vendetta against you is about money laundering. The, the whole thing is all driven by, by massive criminality. We cannot think of – shouldn't the people making policy about how to deal with Russia shouldn't be political scientists. It should be people dealing with Russian – with organized crime. This is an organized crime group running a government. And that's what's so unbelievable about it. So we'll sanction. I got a minute here, Bill, and I know you're going to join me on power play and on question period. I think this is so, so important to understand. Will, will sanctions work against this guy? Well, it, sanctions um, only work if they're applied at the right time. And so in terms of changing his mind, we could have used them earlier before the invasion in a much more, much smaller amount. And it might have changed. It probably would have changed his calculus. Now the purpose of sanctions is just total economic uh, embargo. We need to stop him from having money to spend right. killing Ukrainians. That's the purpose of sanctions now. It's not going to stop him in, in terms of his own psychology, but if he runs out of money, then he can't buy the bullets and, and bombs that are killing Ukrainians. And that has to be the purpose of sanctions now. Bill Browder is the author of Freezing Order. I urge you to read this book. Bill, I thank you. I thank all of you for listening. Catch Bill on Power Play with me tonight. Uh, thanks, Bill, and I'll see you soon.